Good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. This may sound a little bit personal uh, to some of you sitting here, but I assure you it's not. It's just a collective reality. Every week as a pastor, and especially this last week, more often than normal, but this is a normal conversation that I have and pastoral counsel that I get, people coming to me saying, how can I know that I'm saved? Is there assurance of salvation? If I died today, do I have any guarantee or assurance that I would go to heaven and be with God? Or how do I know that I'm loved? Like the Bible says, God loves us. We're going to read about it this morning in John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. Well, sure, that's nice and theoretical, but does he actually love me intimately and personally? I mean, I know me and I struggle to love myself. How can God love me when I feel so fake, so disappointing, when I'm so lonely, when I keep doing the same things over and over and over again that I know the Bible calls sin and that religious culture has told me is the wrong thing to do, the wrong way to think? How can God actually love me? These are some of the most common questions that I get as a pastor and as a person. These are some of the most common questions that I ask. We all wrestle with this. We're trying to understand God's love for us and if it's real or if it's just made up. Our passage for today is going to engage these questions that haunt all of us on our journey towards Jesus. See, coming to know Jesus and walking with Jesus is a journey. And today, John, the author of this gospel, is going to engage these questions for us. He's going to engage those spaces where we question, where we wonder, where we doubt, where we wrestle. And he's going to speak God's truth of love over us. And so I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we read our text for today. John chapter 3, we're going to do verses 1 through 21. John chapter 3, 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you know, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God, would you give us spiritual eyes to see your kingdom this morning? Lord, those of us who are born again, would we see with your spiritual supernatural eyes? And Lord, those of us in this room who may not be born again, I pray that you would give them new life and new birth. Holy Spirit, illuminate your words. Open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds. Shape us and mold us to be obedient to you and to receive your life-giving reproof and correction and encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. This is a very familiar text for most people who have been around the church for any length of time. You've heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Even if you haven't been around church, but you've watched football for the past 20 years, you've probably seen a sign somewhere in the stadium. And a couple of years back, anyway, it was a little bit more popular. John 3.16 was often quoted and or just written down and held up. And this term, born again. Born again, this term used in our passage today, it, it was kind of popular a couple generations ago and, and kind of worked its way into, again, one of those like disgusting things where politicians start to use biblical language to try and get votes. This happened with the word born again. People would throw this word around trying to appeal to an evangelical Christian audience, whether it's a a pop star who was trying to cross over and get more likes, more followers, more listens, or whether it was a politician trying to get more votes. This word born again, for some of you, it has some baggage. For others of you, you're like, it's awesome. What do you mean? That politician was born again. Eh. Time will tell. Their fruit will tell. And these are, these are well-known terms, born again and for God so loves the world. The reality is they're often quoted without any context. They're ripped out of context, they're quoted, somebody takes the label, they slap it on themselves. And so today I want to consider these words in the context of which they were spoken. The entire book of John, we're going to consider the big context of the book of John, but then also Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Why is he coming to Jesus? Why does Jesus respond to him the way that he does? And I think when we consider these words in context, we're going to be able to understand what it means to be born again a little bit better. And we're going to understand this verse, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We'll understand those better in context. And the context of John is that we're all on a journey. We're all on a journey. Some of us are on a journey towards Jesus. Some of us are journeying with Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we see these different characters come into the story who are journeying towards Jesus. They're learning what it means to journey with Jesus. John has given us the thesis to the book. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at it. Let me remind you in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John is full of signs and miracles and teachings that Jesus did. And John, the author here, is saying that he did far more than I could contain in this book. But the specific ones written down here, 
So the specific interaction of Jesus with Nicodemus, it is written down intentionally and on purpose to get John to his thesis, which is that, that, that we would believe. He says, but these are written so that you, and the you there is anyone who would read these words. 2,000 years later on a different continent, in a different language, we're reading these words. John's hoping that generations down the road that people would read this story, Jesus and Nicodemus, and that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one of God, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Our world is desperate and hungry for life, for a meaningful life, for a substantial life, for a flourishing life, and then questioning what comes after, what is the afterlife. And here John is writing these things down so that we may believe Remember that Greek word is pistis. It means to have faith in or to trust. It's not just a head knowledge. So those of you who are tempted to read John 3, we're going to get into John 3 and kind of dissect it a little bit. Those of you who just want to understand it with your head knowledge, there's a, there's a, there's a time and a place to understand things. But that's not belief. Belief is, is it's action. It's trust. It's stepping out in faith. And so when John says, I write these things that you may believe, it's that you may trust Jesus. And that in trusting him, you may have life in his name. See, belief is a journey. To trust is a journey. Think about it. All of us have people in our lives who we've built trust with over the years. And sometimes that that trust is tested. We know it takes time. To trust someone, to trust something, it, it takes time and experience and exposure. It's the same with Jesus. When John says, I write these things that you would believe, that you would trust, that you would have faith in it, it takes time to get to know Jesus. We see God's faithfulness day in and day out, year after year, struggle after struggle, victory after victory. And as we experience and see God's faithfulness, that builds our trust in him. This is the journey towards Jesus. And I want to come back now to John chapter 3, and we're going to look through it, and I want to consider four expectations for the journey towards Jesus. Four expectations that all of us can have in our journey towards Jesus. One of the phrases that that I appreciate the most that helps me anytime I start to feel myself getting frustrated with anyone or anything is this phrase that unmet expectations breeds frustration, right? Frustration comes from unmet expectations. And as as I pastor people, I see a lot of frustration with God and with the Christian life. And, and as I'm more and more honest with myself, I experience some frustration with God in the Christian life. And, and our frustrations with God in the Christian life, or maybe even other Christians, dare we ever get frustrated with other Christians? It comes from unmet or unspoken or unidentified expectations. So this passage, which has been preached through often and misquoted out of context, it's going to give us some expectations that we can have of one another, that we can have of God, that we can have as we journey with God. So four expectations we're going to see this morning. The first one is that the journey towards Jesus is not linear. The journey towards Jesus is not linear. Some of us think that once we place our faith in Jesus, it's like, okay, I said a prayer of salvation. I asked Jesus into my heart in the language of former generations, which is fine and dandy, but this can be a cheap kind of entrance into heaven, right? All you have to do is say a prayer. 
Sometimes people, they, they think that they're off the hook of actually dis- being discipled by Jesus and giving their whole life to Jesus because it's like, well, I said a prayer. I, I, I was baptized. I was confirmed. Or I did that check mark to give my life to God, and now I can go do my life any way that I want. Sometimes it's disingenuine. It's not a genuine conversion. There's no new birth. You're not born again. Other times, people genuinely do give their hearts to Jesus. They are born again. They experience new life. And then they're, they're, they're led to believe that their life with Jesus will be a constant movement up and to the right. Like, you're going to stop sinning as much. You're going to be a kinder person. You're going you're gonna to always want to sing and read the Bible and love your neighbor. Do you always want to love your neighbor? Do you always want to sing? Do you always want to read the Bible? Are you always kind? Are you always forgiving? Do you ever hold resentment? See, the, the Christian life, journeying with Jesus, journeying towards Jesus, it's not linear. It's not up into the right. And we see this powerfully in this passage with Nicodemus. Look at John 3, 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he's a teacher, he's a ruler of the Jews. He, he's one of, their, one of their most studied, excellent teachers. His religious credentials are out of this world. Like, he went to seminary, and then he got his doctorate, and then he got his PhD, and he led a big church, and everyone came. To, he had the podcast with the most downloads. This guy knew his stuff. Everyone was coming to him to be taught in the religious law, the Old Testament law. This man named Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. It's interesting that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. There's different theories about this. I think the most likely theory is that Nicodemus was curious about Jesus. That maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe Jesus is this one that that all these ragtag disciples of his are claiming to be. If you remember, Jesus' disciples, they all failed out of rabbinic school. They they couldn't cut it. They didn't have the intellect. They didn't have the, the chops to become Pharisees, to become leaders. They were common fishermen and carpenters. They, they, they mostly came from the non-prominent cities. They were the people who were overlooked. But there, there, there's this growing movement around this person named Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, Joseph and Mary's son. Why are people listening to him? Why are people following him? And he's doing these amazing signs and miracles. There's something different about this man. And Nicodemus is interested. He's curious. But he's a prominent leader in the religious institution. And so there is a lot of religious pressure and social capital that he would put at stake if it was known by his peers that he was interested in Jesus. Nicodemus is a seeker here. He's curious about Jesus, but he doesn't want to be found out. He comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want his curiosity to be known by his religious leaders. He's, he's as one other pastor said in talking about, um, talking about this, he says that he's, he's kind of a sucky disciple, right? He's, he's interested in Jesus. In fact, he's kind of following Jesus. He's trying to figure out what, what it's like to follow Jesus, but he's just embarrassed. He, he, you know, he's not sold out. He's not radical. He's sucky. He's scared. He's weak. He's worried about his social status and his standing more than he is his identification with Jesus. 
The journey towards Jesus isn't linear. Some of you experience that. Some of you continue to experience that. Others of you, you're sold out, you're radical, you're like, I'm with Jesus, I don't care who knows it. Others of you, you're like, I don't, I've got questions, I've got curiosities, I'm not sure I'm willing to give this up, I'm not sure I'm willing to give that up. This is Nick at night. Few of you got that, my generation, all right, Nick at night. See, we see Nick the seeker here. And then as we continue in the Gospel of John, flip over to John chapter 19, we see some transformation in Nicodemus. Nick becomes a servant. John chapter 19, verse 38 through 42. This is after Jesus has been crucified, hung on the cross. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. There's another one of these guys. His discipleship towards Jesus. His journey towards Jesus isn't linear. He's, he's a secret disciple. He's a sucky disciple. He's a weak disciple. He's a scared disciple. He's, he's a follower of Jesus who's not willing and ready to give it all up yet. It says, so Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, here he is again. The only other time he's mentioned in this book. Comes to Jesus at night in chapter 3. And now in chapter 19, here he is on the scene again. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus brought it in the linens and clothes and the spices as it was, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of the preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Joseph and Nicodemus, these secret scared disciples, Remember Nicodemus in chapter 3 coming to Jesus at night? Here, after Jesus' death, Nicodemus is finally willing to stake his reputation on Jesus. He brings 75 pounds worth of, 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 of aloes and burial spices for Jesus. He goes all in at this point. He's willing for his Jewish leaders, his friends, his peers, the religious establishment to know that he is now willing to give honor to Jesus. And this is Jesus's dead body. What does he even have to gain at this point? Nothing. Jesus hasn't raised from the dead. There's no, no guarantee or assurance that he's the Messiah, but he's seen enough in Jesus to stake his identity and his claim upon Jesus. He's now out as a Jesus follower. Both him and Joseph of Arimathea, who both came to Jesus in secret at night because they didn't want to be seen. See, the journey towards Jesus is not linear. My question is, when was Nick saved? Between chapter 3 and, and chapter 19, when he's clearly at least willing to stake his reputation on Jesus. In fact, we don't necessarily even know that Nicodemus was saved, that he had this born-again experience that Jesus had taught him about. But there's an indication that he, he, he might be saved. He's making steps of trust and faith in Jesus, right? Because to believe in Jesus isn't just a, isn't just a mental assent at some theological doctrines. It's not quoting a creed. It's not reciting a scripture. It, it's, it's life change that proves that, that there's a belief that has changed how you live. 
And Nicodemus, at least his mind is changing about who Jesus is. He has some kind of trust, some kind of faith in Jesus to the point where he's willing to, 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 to sacrifice his own profit, his own gain, his own identity, his own reputation to honor Jesus's dead body. And so this is the first observation that I want to make from John chapter 3 and the first expectation that I want you to have for yourself and for other Christians and for other seekers who may or may not yet be Christians. The journey towards Jesus isn't linear. Stop judging other people based off of your story. Stop judging yourself based off of other people's stories. Jesus meets us where we're at. He speaks truth. He, he proclaimed truth to Nicodemus. He didn't honor Nicodemus for his religious efforts and, and his religious pedigree. He says, no, you must be born again. He doesn't say, good job, Nicodemus, being a great teacher of the law. You've upheld the Old Testament law as best you could. You are esteemed and respected among your peers. Good job, today you will be saved. No, that's not what he did. He said, you must be born again. He, he spoke truth to Nicodemus. And if you remember John chapter one, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He spoke truth, but, but his essence, his person was grace and it drew Nicodemus in so much so that Nicodemus at the end of the book is willing to follow Jesus or be identified as a Jesus follower. And so maybe the question is less, for, for some of us, maybe the question is less about that date of when are we born again and can we define it? Do we remember it? Do we know it? And maybe it's more just about, is there evidence that I'm willing to stake my claim, my reputation, my profit, my, myself on Jesus? I, I, I'm willing to follow Jesus. I'm willing to trust Jesus. I'm willing to have faith in him. All right, the second expectation that we can have for the Christian life is that the journey requires an initial step of faith, which is known as new birth, followed by many subsequent steps of faith or, or new life. This is how we can think about it. So again, we don't know about Nicodemus, if he was born again, if he made that initial step of faith in Jesus and, and gave his life to Jesus, or how many subsequent steps of faith that he had, this evidence of new life. The point of this text and the point of looking at Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in John chapter 19, isn't to, for us to try and figure out if and when he was born again. And sometimes as Christians, we do that. We, we try to decide, well, who's really saved and, and who's not saved. And we got to make sure they're saved. In fact, we can't let them take communion unless they're saved. We can't let them be a part of our, our church leadership unless they're saved, unless they're born again. And it's hard to know, right? The journey towards Jesus isn't linear. All of us know people who have at one point in time professed to be Christians and now profess no longer to be Christians. All of us know people who at one point in time profess to not be Christians, but they're growing in, in their understanding of Jesus and their excitement of Jesus and they're giving themselves, of, themselves to Jesus. And so it's not linear, but this journey, it does require an initial step of faith which is new birth, which Jesus talks about, followed by subsequent steps of faith, which is just this ongoing transformation. Jesus tells Nicodemus, look at verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus' invitation to Nicodemus. Again, we don't know what Nicodemus did with this invitation at the moment. It seems like he probably walked away confused. <laughs> Many of us walk away confused. The journey towards Jesus isn't linear. There's a process to it. 
But Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus is that unless one is born again, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God. There's the spiritual rebirth that needs to happen, this, this change of heart, change of mind, as the prophet Ezekiel would say in the Old Testament, the heart of stone needs to be made a heart of flesh. As the Bible would also say, the, the, the veil over our eyes needs to be removed. The deafness of our ears needs to be open. Our eyes need to see who Jesus is. There's this initial step of faith, this new birth moment. Some of you know that moment for you, and you cherish that moment. Others of you, you can't pinpoint a moment, and that's okay. It's more important to have evidence of new birth through a growing new life than it is to be able to point back to a moment and have no evidence of a new birth. Right? Like some of you don't know where your birth certificate is. You can find that thing if, if somebody like made you. But there's evidence of your life. I see you. You're breathing. You're talking. Well, not right now. You're sitting quietly. You're here. So the proof of your birth is what is seen and experienced not something in the past that you can point to. It's, it's similar for, for new birth, for new life. Jesus is telling John, though, that there is this moment of placing faith in Jesus. Some people know it, some people don't know it, but there is this moment of crossover. Theologically, we call it regeneration. It's when our dead hearts are made new when our eyes that can't see God or see the gospel or see Jesus clearly are, are illuminated and we can see. Look at verses 5 through 8. I love Nicodemus' response here to, to Jesus. You must be born again. Nicodemus said to him, verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus here, again, is he's getting at regeneration and also sanctification. If you look at verses 19 through 21, he says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's this moment of new birth, of transformation, of being born again, but then there's this life of increasingly trusting Jesus, laying your life down before him, bringing your sins, your deeds of darkness into the light, being exposed. And then I love how verse 21 closes. It says that his works have been carried out in God. This isn't you doing a good work. It's God doing a good work in you. And so there's two realities here that we need to consider with this. There's this new birth moment, right? This is regeneration. New birth, it's, it's, it involves an initial saving faith in Jesus. It's a one-time event initiated and consummated by the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Not your efforts, not your religious tradition. It's the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which John mentions here, which Jesus mentions here, John records it in verses 5 through 8. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when we're immersed into the kingdom life of God. 
In that, in that moment of regeneration, of saving faith, the Holy Spirit now takes possession of your life. You are made new and the Holy Spirit is living and active in you. So that's what John means, what Jesus means when he says, um, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say that unless you are born of water and spirit, so spirit, that's this regeneration moment where the Holy Spirit takes possession of your life, you are born again. And then water baptism is immersion into the family of God. That's why baptism is important. And it has spanned the generations in church history. And, and, and unfortunately, it's one of those things that in church history, people have fought about and disagreed about and divided over. Jesus' point here is that baptism is important because it identifies you with the people of God. Now, we're not saved by baptism, but baptism is a sign that we have joined the family of God. And then the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when we're given the Holy Spirit and he now has possession and control of our life. And the New Testament will go on to teach that we can, we can squelch the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit, we can choose to keep in step with the Holy Spirit or not, but somebody who's born again, somebody who has a new birth, a new life, the Holy Spirit is in you. He is living and active. He's the one guiding us and moving us along. This is regeneration. There's one other point here that the second point that it's followed, this initial act of faith is followed by many subsequent acts of faith. This is what we say theologically is called sanctification. It's it's when we learn to live out the new life given us at the new birth, and it takes a lifelong journey filled with many ups and downs, stops and starts, victories and failures, faith and doubt. Amen? You know that's true. This life is best, and biblically, say and biblically there, because biblically this is how this life is done. There's no other way to, to experience the new life outside of Jesus-centered and Spirit-filled community, also known as a local church. We're together, uh, where together we learn and relearn how to trust Jesus as we let his light expose our darkness. See, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark. Like Nicodemus, you and I, we can come to Jesus in the dark, but Jesus will always draw us towards the light. So what John, this is what Jesus is saying here at the end of this interaction with Nicodemus, the, the verses 19 through 21 about light exposing the darkness. On this non-linear journey towards Jesus, there's times and seasons where we dabble in the darkness. And we can come to Jesus in the darkness and he's always going to lead us to the light. We ought to be able to come to our community, to our brothers and sisters in Jesus and, and confess our darkness and let the light of Jesus shine into our dark places. This is where healing comes and this should be an ex expectation for us as we journey towards Jesus together. There's people who are receiving new birth, new life. They're being born again, but together we are helping one another live out our new life. It's less important to find day, time, and place where you pray to prayer. And it's more important that we together, as a community, on a journey towards Jesus, are trusting him increasingly. We're learning and we're relearning to trust him as we let his light shine into our darkness. Third expectation that we can have for this journey is that our spiritual questions and longings can't be answered by religious reasoning or religious, natural reasoning or religious effort. Our spiritual questions and longings, we all have them. There's thousands of different religions. 
Why? Because innate in the heart of man is this understanding that, that we were made for more, that we were made by something else. Why, why do we have the questions and the longings and the yearnings that we have? And, and we live in the West where oftentimes in the West we will try to answer these questions with natural reasoning or we'll substitute natural reasoning for religious effort. Go to church more, give more, do more confession, say more Hail Marys, do whatever it is. Read your Bible more. Do more devos. And the reality that we need to keep in mind on our journey towards Jesus is that our spiritual questions and longings cannot be answered with natural, natural reasoning or religious effort. And we see this so clearly in the life of Nicodemus. Natural, natural reasonings in religious effort. For, let's jump back, before we look at Nicodemus, let's jump back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 18. And we looked at this last week, so it'll be a review for those of you who are here, but I want to touch on it real quickly. It says, So the Jews said to him, said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. See, the, the religious and the natural world, they, they looked at Jesus' comments and they said, How can you rebuild the temple in three days, it took 46 years. They're using natural reasoning. Now, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus, jump back down to John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus, curious about Jesus, asking Jesus questions. He's, he's a seeker. And Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And look at Nicodemus's response. How can man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Natural reasoning, right? He hears Jesus' spiritual words and spiritual invitation to new life, and he goes natural. Well, that doesn't even make sense. Now, I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't use natural reasoning ever, right? There is science. There is reality. There is, like, there is a time and a place to, to be like, well, how does the, this spiritual comment reconcile with the natural known world? But what Nicodemus is doing here is, is he's trying to take the spiritual questions and longings which he had, which are what drove him to Jesus, and he's thinking naturally about it. He's not thinking supernaturally. And Jesus had just said in verse 3 that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You need spiritual eyes to be able to see the spiritual world. So some of you get so frustrated when non-believers can't understand the truths of the Bible. Don't be surprised. They don't have spiritual eyes to see the spiritual truths of the world or of God, right? They have worldly eyes. And so they, they, they're trying as best as they can to answer the, the longings and the questionings of their heart with natural solutions, Please don't get mad at our school systems for trying to answer the, the longings of their heart and the brokenness of their lives with natural answers. Embody yourself among them and try to help shape them and point them to the light. Sometimes us Christians, we, we, we make enemies in the world because we beat the world up for trying to answer their questions with worldly solutions. And unless they're born again, unless they have new eyes to see Jesus, our stuff does not make sense to them. 
And so we don't condemn them. We don't shame them. We, we try to, like Jesus embodied himself among us, right? God in flesh. We go to where people go to. We embody ourselves in their lives, in their world, in their communities, and we show them the truth of the gospel, truth and grace. They're trying to answer the longings of their heart with natural reasoning and or religious efforts. Look at verse 9. So Jesus tells Nicodemus about the spirit and the flesh, the baptism, and Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He's just baffled. He, he, he's trying to answer his longings with his religious effort, right? I'm a leader of the law. I'm a teacher of the Jews. I'm a Pharisee. And surely that ought to be good enough. So many people feel like if we just do better, if we just do better, if we just do better, then God will love us. And he's saying, no, there's this new birth that needs to take place. You don't earn God's love and acceptance and approval by doing better. You earn it by faith and trust and giving your life over to me. Jesus gives him spiritual answers. He doesn't answer him naturally or with religion. Verse three says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verses five through eight says, you must be born of water and spirit. Verses 10 through 13, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus said, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak now what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is the bridge. He's the ladder between heaven and earth, and he's the one who has spiritual answers for our deep spiritual longings and questions. And so keep that in mind. If you're frustrated, it may be that you're trying to answer the deepest questions of your heart and soul with natural reasoning or even your religious effort, and Jesus would come to you and say, have faith, trust me, Receive my spirit, be born again. Seeing and experiencing the kingdom of God requires spiritual eyes, which come from spiritual birth, the new birth that Jesus speaks of here in this passage. And then lastly, the fourth expectation that we can have for the journey towards Jesus is that the love of God is seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is always the catalyst for new birth. God's love, and I I began this saying, we're questioning, does God really love me? Can God love me? How can I know that God loves me? And this passage reminds us of God's love for us, and God's love is always most clearly seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the thing that pushes us towards new birth. Not answering, our not answering our spiritual questions and longings with natural answers or religious effort, but it's, it's this cross. We studied 1 Corinthians a while back, and remember it said the cross, it's, it's foolishness to the world and it's weakness to the power hungry, but to those who believe it is the power of God, the wisdom of God. The death and resurrection of Jesus is what propels new life, and it's what shows us God's love for us. Love is sacrifice, and we see God's sacrifice for us in that he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die in our place on our behalf and overcome sin and death in the grave. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Remember when Jesus talked about the temple? 
said, I'll raise it up again in three days. And verse 22 says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed, they had faith, they trusted the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' death and resurrection was a catalyst for their belief, for their faith, for their trust. And then look at John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 here as we close out. Jesus here is trying to remind us, and John here is recording this for us so that we would grow in our belief in our journey towards Jesus. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is a reminder to them about a story in the Old Testament when there were serpents that were biting the ankles of God's people, inflicting them with disease, and they were dying. This was a disciplinary action from God to try and get their attention. Sometimes when we ignore God, when we disobey God, when we intentionally stiff-arm God, he does drastic measures to get our attention. In this Old Testament story, God is going to drastic measures to get their attention, to bring them back to faith. And, and, And he tells Moses to make a bronze snake and hold it up, and that anyone who would look at that bronze snake held up on that pole, they would be healed and saved of their disease. So that's the story here that Jesus is relating to. And he's saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, and anyone who looked at it was healed of their disease and saved. It's pointing you to this greater day. Jesus, the Son of Man, lifted up. That whoever believes in him, whoever looks upon him, whoever beholds the Son of God on the cross and believes will have eternal life. How do we know God's love for us? How do you know God's love for you? Not by proving that you're getting better, but by looking to Jesus, the one who was lifted up and who overcame sin and death in the grave. He goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Every week when we gather at Park Community Church, we want to lift our eyes and remember Jesus who hung upon the cross, seeing God's love for us in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But then Jesus who overcame sin and death and the grave and conquered the old life to give us the new life, new birth and faith. So when we gather, we gather to worship Jesus. To to remind ourselves that we are loved by God and we see this in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's elements here two elements here in the front and one in the back, two stations, the Lord's table where he would invite us to remember his death and resurrection. That our belief, our faith, our trust is grown as we look at Jesus and as we see God's love for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not in anything else, not in your efforts, your successes, or your failures and your doubts. That doesn't justify you. That doesn't make you right with God. What makes you right with God is Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. Amen? I'm going to pray for us, and then you're welcome to visit the communion stations whenever you're ready. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that you showed us God's love for us by embodying yourself among us, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, and overcoming sin and death in the grave. 
Lord, I pray that as we take communion again this week, that it would be a catalyst for our new birth. Lord, those of us who have received the new birth, I pray that this would remind us of that new birth and that we would walk out in it. And Lord, anyone here today who may not have that new birth, I pray that they would come to you in faith, in trust, in belief, and receive the new birth that you have for them. Jesus, would you nourish us now with this meal through your spirit, for your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.